Thanks for tuning in. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to introduce Water Wellness. Now, if you don't never heard of Water Wellness, they have some of the best, cleanest water in Utah. And they have that because they have a seven-step purification process. That's what makes this water ultra-high quality. Now, here's a word from the owner of Water Wellness, Walter Hogan. Our mission at Water and Wellness is to hydrate as many people as possible and to help bring water to the billions of people that don't have clean water around the world. I've watched a documentary called Blue Gold and it just shows how many people around the world struggle to have clean water. And it's the saddest thing and it should be a basic human right that everyone deserves. It's always made me want to help other people. Change your water, change your life. You can find them at waterwellnesscenter.com. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Adaptive Leaders Podcast. I have a special guest today. We made it out all the way to sunny Las Vegas, 85 degrees. It is beautiful weather out here in Utah. It's been schizophrenic back and forth, snowing one day, flash floods the next day. So it's a nice, nice change of pace out here. Uh, but the guest I have today is a professional fighter. He's undefeated 6-0. and we are grateful that you came on the podcast today. We have Mitch Ramirez. What's thanks up, for guys? coming on the podcast, man. Thank Cheers. You. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Yeah, coming all the way out here to Las Vegas to come and do this with me. Yeah, I'm excited. Man. You uh, you have quite the story, and uh, I was doing a little bit of due diligence on you with podcasts and stuff, man. And I I don't think those interviews are doing a good job in highlighting who you are and yeah. uh, really bringing out you know what's made you you. So on that note, Mitch, uh, we'd love to get to know you. Could, could you start back in you know the early days? What made Mitch Mitch? Man, that's a, that's a <laughs> this is the story right here. Right? So life early wasn't always like it didn't didn't go smooth from an early age. You know, I feel like mm-hmm. from a, from a really young age, I was kind of set apart. You know, there's kind of something wrong with me, whether it's ADD or whatever 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 you know hyperactive diagnosis they try to give a kid. Right, I was just always into something I wasn't supposed to be into. Mm-hmm. I was always getting in trouble for something. Fortunately, unfortunately for me, uh, I was, I'm not an easily, I'm a very stubborn person, I'm not easily broken. Mm-hmm. So when people would, you know, try to give me harsh punishments or things like that, it actually like make me double down and go back into it. Like, I don't even know if there's a way to handle a kid like me correctly. Even in elementary school, I was, I was getting in trouble a lot and it was, it just progressed. So um, around the time I was probably like eight, nine years old, I realized that, you know, I was, I was just always in trouble for something and I didn't know why it was like, you know, it was almost like my own, I guess, hardwiring was working against me in a way where mm-hmm. I almost couldn't control it. You know, I was like, I was getting in trouble for things that I wasn't even necessarily realizing I was doing almost. So finally I just got to a point and I, I remember this moment when I was eight, I was in second grade. I remember a moment when I had this teacher who was just sick of me. So she mm-hmm. had me, she sat me in front of the class and had everybody insult me, openly insult me. And I couldn't get, I couldn't say anything back to him. So what? they went around the room for 30 kids and every kid gave me their worst insult of what they thought about me. And at that moment I realized that. Wait, was it insult or was it feedback? No insult, like oh, insult, what? like go at him kind of She's, thing. Is she still a teacher? I have no idea. I hope Hopefully not. not. Hopefully I hope not. not. Honestly, it was, I think <laughs> back on this, I'm like, well, that's terrible. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and, and uh, that would have built a complex in any kid. Man. Oh yeah. But at oh, that point shit. I was just, I was like, all right, well, if I'm bad, I'll be good at being bad. It's like, okay, well, then this is who I am. This is what I'm going to be. So I leaned into that and I was, you know, you know, from then on, it was class clown. It was the kid that was going to do something crazy. You know, I was always, I was always down for that position because that was where I fit in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just progressed, right? By the time I was probably 12, I was, I was hanging out with, uh, you know, kids and people that had families that were up to no good. You would say not your typical law abiding citizen mm-hmm. and, uh, was, was starting to get in trouble. So by the time I was 14, you know, I was dabbling with drugs and alcohol. I got arrested for the first time when I was 14. 
Um, and then it was just kind of a snowball effect. You know, I never got off paper after that point. I was always on probation. I was always in a detention center, a work camp, something. The next nine years of my life, I spent the majority of set, like about, about five of those years incarcerated, mm -hmm. actually like in like lockup mm -hmm. and another, at least two years of like probations and programs and, you know, behavior schools and whatever else, you know, to try to get me to stop being what I was, you know, quit doing what I was doing. By the time I was probably 16 or 17, I was really, I really developed a pretty severe drug problem at that point. Okay. Uh, I was selling drugs. I was doing drugs. Uh, I started doing heroin uh, and cocaine when I was 16 uh, by the, by way of pain pills, of course, mm -hmm. as, as most people do. Um, and that was like, and that became a struggle that uh, honestly defined me and kind of carved me, but almost killed me. Right. as well so there's a few things i want to unpack right yeah. when you were uh we'll call it a troubled youth what was the reason for that was it was that the moment in the in the, in the elementary school when that teacher did that or it, during grade school what no. was the moment was it your parents was it rebelling against you know what i mean parental figures authority figures what was what was the motivation i think it was all of the above okay. um i was raised in a really religious household you know mm -hmm. coming from you know orm utah, utah heart of mormon country mm -hmm. um and my parents at the time were extremely extremely religious um to the point where it was abusive you know mm -hmm. it was it was so extreme that it was it was really unhealthy and I think that that's kind of where it started, but, and I wouldn't fit into that mold either. I was just dealt with harshly when I was a child. Let's just put mm -hmm. it that way. You know, we don't, you know, at this point in my life, um, we've kind of come full circle and, and my parents are now like, you know, they've evolved and everything else. It's crazy. That's a, we can get into that later. But, mm -hmm. um, at that time in my life, you know, they were doing their best, but it was probably not the best answer for me as a child, you know, and I, and mm -hmm. it, it really did push me into that you know, rebel against authority, rebel against what everybody, everybody that's supposed to be protecting me and taking care of me is, is hurting me and putting me in positions that are, that are, you know, scary and like mm -hmm. bad, you know, I'm, I'm being, I'm being allowed to be ostracized by the people that are supposed to be looking out for me. Wow. So it's like, okay, it's just me now. The, you know, occurrence with, you know, being that thing that happened to me when I was you know, an eight year old boy. That's the earliest one where I really, I think a screw kind of snapped at that point. <laughs> I, bet, I bet, bro. I was like, I would okay. Have for anyone. Man. Okay. You, know, I, like, well, you, you hear about getting heckled and, and teased on the, the playground, you know, not in the classroom. That's supposed to be a safe space. The yeah. Teacher, the teacher should have known better. Right? Like, you know, I mean, I was a hard kid to deal with for sure, dude. I was, I was definitely super rowdy and I think I'd hurt somebody's feelings or something. So the teacher's answer to that was to make sure that my feelings got hurt real bad. You know what I mean? So it was like, just line them up and you can't say anything. You don't get to argue. You get to sit there and you get to see it and you have to, and you have to like say thank you kind of thing. Because we have a lot of uh, audience members or, or listeners that are from Utah. That's kind yeah. of my base, right? What, and they, they may be dealing with what you dealt with, with the... Uh, the way that you're raised, right? Yeah. From, with the LDS background or Mormon background. How did you deal with it? I'm sure you're in a better place now, right? And you're what, 30? Yeah. So at 30, you're in a better place with your parents. But if you could give some sort of advice of how you dealt with it personally, and maybe what parents out there that are still LDS or Mormon that are trying to raise kids, you know, how could they do that better? You know, I, I feel like what the, the mistake that I feel like I, I see a lot is you have this thing, right? This religion that, that to you is this beautiful thing. And, and you're, you're told from such a young age that if you don't conform, like, oh, you're going to hell, like it's the worst case scenario kind of thing. And I think it just, it, it drives people into a state of fear. Mm -hmm. And when you're afraid, you don't act rationally, mm -hmm. right? So when your child questions faith, you react extremely. You know what I mean? It's like, you're grounded. I'm taking this from you or I'm hitting you or I'm, you know, there's, it's, it's very rarely like, oh, this is a good discussion. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time, like in, in, in the church, they say like, oh, all questions are open and, and answerable, mm -hmm. but they're not. You know what I mean? Yeah. A lot of it, it's like, you can answer questions. You can, you can ask questions to a point a lot mm -hmm. of the time. And I think that that's the biggest mistake that I see because if you're not willing to have those conversations or you're not educated enough to have those conversations, 
you need to look at yourself and you need to educate yourself to have those conversations. If this is something you truly believe in and you want this for your children and you're trying to show them this, then you need to be able to operate from a place of knowing and compassion and understanding, mm-hmm. right? Because when you drive in and you try to make somebody believe something or make somebody be away, even if it comes from a good place, my parents included, uh, when it's done in a way that's forceful, it never has a positive effect. Right. And on the other side of it, if you feel like you're getting forced into these things, I mean, honestly, man, the way I dealt with it is, and this is probably not going to sound great in my situation. I just did. I just stopped talking about it. Mm-hmm. I just quit putting myself in situations where these people could attack me or take these things from me or put me, you know, make yep. me do that. I just started being like, oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Like I'll mm-hmm. tell you what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to be my own person as much as I can be until I'm, mm-hmm. you know, in a place where I can be my own person. Mm-hmm. And if you are somebody who's, you know, and this isn't even like anti-religion, yeah. anything like that, you know, personally myself, you know, I'm not religious, uh, I'm spiritual, I guess you could say, but mm-hmm. I've read all the religious texts. You know, I've mm-hmm. I've really educated myself, and by educating myself, I feel like I not only did I come to terms with the, with understanding where these people were coming from, which gave me compassion for them and the way they acted towards me. Mm-hmm. It also gave me like a lens into human nature, you know, and 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 the way people people operate. So mm-hmm. I think that for me, that's that's what I would recommend: is educate yourself. If you if, you know you are your own professor, mm-hmm. you have this. I have an iPhone. You have all these things like. Don't be afraid to look in. And that goes on both sides. You find yourself doubting or you find yourself in a crappy spot, you know? So. Right. And I think that's also a testament to staying curious, being curious, you know, self-education, becoming an autodidact. If that was done to me, right? Like I had a very similar background, right? But I left I left that religion in my teenage years as well. And mm-hmm. But that kind of overbearing rules, regulations is what caused me to, to explode out. You know, like I was mm-hmm. like, I... You can't hold me. Yeah. Like, I, I'm going to figure this shit out. I, I want to live my life as uh, boys. You're trying to figure yourself out. You know, you're going through pivotal years, 13, 14, 15, 16. Like, I'm, how do I become a man? It's not by following the rules and regulations that were jammed down my throat. So I definitely resonate with that, what you're saying. And I also, you know, if I can say something or echo what you said, it's basically like just allow your kids to be curious. Mm-hmm. If they want to explore something else, let them. Yes. And if you're so confident in the trueness of your religion, then then you should have nothing to worry about. Yeah. You know, they'll come and, and they'll figure their, their, their life out on their own anyways. Yeah. And you never had control in the first place. That's, yeah. that's like the caveat is the illusion of control. You never had it. Not even over your kids. Right. Like they're their own people. So. I do want to dive back into your background. You you kind of skipped over something. Four years of incarceration. Yeah. So what, so what what happened? Because I talked about you know the the two things pulling both ways, but unfortunately you know the the, the negative side of my life was was winning for a while there. Mm. Um, but it was you know for me it was it was the first time I ever got got incarcerated. I don't even remember. I think I got caught like stealing or doing something like that, and mm. you know they made me start going to detention. And I just juvie? These, yeah, juvie uh-huh. is detention. That's what we call it in Utah. Right. Um, and I was I got like you know two weeks here, a week here, a weekend here, four weekends in a row here, like all mm. this you know all these things you know program here, program that. Uh, and then when I was sixteen, uh, I was on drug court for like a crime that I probably shouldn't even been on drug court for. It's just like the way things went. You know, I failed enough mm. drug tests to where they put me into a program where. You know, it's supposed to be a plea in advance where you have crazy charges, but I had no crazy charges. I just somehow wiggled my way into this program because I couldn't, because I kept getting caught smoking weed, actually. <laughs> Whoa, shit. Yeah. So I'm in here with like, you know, guys that are trying to kill. And that's probably where I got educated on real drugs, to be honest mm-hmm. with you, was like, mm-hmm. oh shit, you guys like shoot heroin. Like, that's mm-hmm. pretty crazy, you know? And I'm like 15. I think I was a sophomore in high school or going into my sophomore year. And uh, so long story short with that, mm-hmm. I got in trouble uh, for failing another drug test. 
and they gave me 600 hours community service and sent me to a work camp for like four months where oh, they shaved sure. my head and made me wear army boots and work oh, my sure. ass off all day. <laughs> and I had to fight dudes every other day in these cells. Like, you know, guys are always wanting to fight and, you know, when, I went to prison as an adult, man, but when your kids are way crazier, you know, kids are right. way crazier than oh, adults, shit, you yeah. know, like kids really do want to be like, you know, they, they mm -hmm. look up to like that negative lifestyle in a very ignorant way. So they act super nuts, you know? So mm. honestly, like going, going to detention and going to some Why places. Is that? I Why don't know, man. I bro, think, <laughs> bro, I have, I have, like, I have homies and I remember in our teenage years, we were like, Scarface is the guy and we want to do that. Dude. And we would do some stupid fucking shit. Like yep. we would get so rowdy and like go so extreme. You're just out here to make a name for yourself. Just try to be fucking Scarface. <laughs> Why is that, bro? Is it just lack of brain development your brain isn't developed and it just gets hijacked by testosterone yeah. i don't know dude our primal instincts for i, don't, I have no idea that's a good question but <laughs> i definitely fell a trap to it you yeah. know and it was like and i think it once again it was the the early conditioning of okay i'm gonna be good at being bad so who's mm -hmm. the who's the worst you know right. so it's like oh i'm gonna i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do that and you know pretty quickly you know at that point when i went to this work camp i'd started dabble with selling drugs and things like that because i i didn't come from a family that had a lot of money we lived in a nice neighborhood so it was like people thought we might have money but we really didn't you mm -hmm. know it was like one of those situations and uh so if i wanted to go do anything with my friends if i want if, if i wanted to have something you know i had to go get that you know and for me that was the, the easiest path to that was you know well you know you can sell some drugs you know this guy over here can get you going and then you're doing this and now i have money and now i you know i'm somebody who people look up to in my little mm -hmm. community and i'm you know working towards being that scarface like right you right say, you know right. it's like starting to live it mm -hmm. and that just got you know even crazier so i got out of that work camp and i was still you know always under tabs and i you know i faked my way through that. I got off of it and I was so happy. And then I got in trouble again, like the next day after terminating that and got a mm -hmm. new charge. And it was just constant. You know, I was always under this, this, this pressure and just put myself in these situations. Uh, and when I was 19 is when I, you know, I, I got, by the time I was 18, they were, they were so sick of me. They're like, we're you just, just go to jail for a month, mm -hmm. you know, and you're going to get out and you're going to be an adult with a clean slate. And you, next time you get in trouble, it's, you are the, you are the adult courts, courts problem. We can't help you anymore. You mm -hmm. know, they're like, you've, you have exhausted any resource. And I mean, they weren't helping me, bro. They're throwing me in cages and like, you know, I was having to eat right. shit food and fight for my life, bro. It's like they were like doing nice things right. for me. No. So like, you know, it's not like uh, they pretend like they're, yeah. oh, we do all. No, 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 right. dude. It's not the way you're not helping. You're not helping people with what you're doing. You know, it's you're you're just finding a spot for them to keep them over for a little while, you 100%. know, and. And it's and, not uh, making them worse. Like, and yeah. then you're associating, you know, you're getting in there with all those other kids that want to be Scarface, you know, oh, and you're coming up with all these yeah. new ideas mm -hmm. and meeting up with them after and you got new connections and, you know, the same thing happens with adults. But that at that point, I feel like I was starting to realize like, God damn, I'm, I'm kind of ruining my life here. Do you have and, any stories of, of how that those gears started turning? You're like, my life, if I continue this way, what's going to happen? I, when I started doing hair, well, the first time I did hair when I was like 16, I want to say 16 or maybe just 17. And I remember when I did that, I'd been drinking and I remember I woke up and I realized that I'd gotten, I'd done heroin the night before, you know? And I was like, damn, that's pretty extreme. But in my mind, I was like, this little voice in the back of my head was like, this is a terrible idea, bro. Like you need to, mm. you need to relax. Cause I knew enough about it at that point to know like, Hey, that's probably not a good idea. But the other side of me justified it. And because I was this crazy person that loved that reputation of being that crazy person of being the person that is down to do whatever i was like well i mean i'm, I'm gonna do it one more time because i didn't i was drunk i don't even know how it felt so i got to know how it feels so oh, i can talk shit. about yeah, it yeah. you know tell people i've done this shit for whatever mm -hmm. status i thought that was going to give me right. uh, you know? right. and uh, so i did it again and unfortunately i liked it a lot mm -hmm. so i did it you know and i was and my i was doing cocaine with it and everything else and 
I did that for a few months. And at that point I realized like, oh shit, like I'm really, like I'm addicted to this. And I need to stop doing this. So I quit hanging out with a buddy that was, that had access to this. I didn't know anybody who could get this stuff other than one guy at the time. Mm-hmm. So I stopped hanging out with him and that was enough. I stopped doing it, you know, and I was doing my own thing. I went back to, you know, selling civilized people drugs and, <laughs> and, uh, and I uh, was, uh, that kind of, I was able to maintain that spot for maybe like a year, but by the time I was a senior, it had kind of reared its ugly head again. And I was back, I was doing heroin again. And I, I kept trying to quit and couldn't quit. And that was when I realized like, oh, you're in a situation that you don't have control over anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I was 18, you know, I'd been ahead on my credit cause I'd done all that time incarcerated. I, I did a bunch of, you know, packets. I'd gotten ahead on high school. I was supposed to graduate early. Didn't even, didn't even end up graduating. Ended up just getting my GED because mm-hmm. I was so strung out. I couldn't, I couldn't go to school. You know, I, I was just, I was hanging out at the dope house. I was trying to trying to feed my habit, you know, trying to get the next connection or the next plug. And at this point, you know, I was selling like real drugs because I had a, such a habit I had to, I couldn't afford it otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and that continued for a few years, to be honest with you. And it turned into, it, it turned into IV use, right? I was, I was mainlining it for the last, you know, I think year and a half of my addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really crazy, dude. I, I overdosed multiple times. There was a couple, two different times I overdosed by myself. And just managed to wake up like 17 hours later. Oh my like, god! Don't know how I survived. Wow. You know, like one time I, one time I was down. You know, the second time it happened, I actually was down to die. Like I just was so miserable in my life, and I tried to quit so many times because you know, I it, it, with who I was and you know wanting to be bad, I'd never mad. You know, I'd never wanted to be a junkie. Like nobody mm-hmm. wants to be a junkie. You know what I'm saying? So uh, once I realized that that's who I was, I was like, well, fuck. You know, I don't even want to. I don't know if I want to do this at all. You yeah. know, and I and I tried to stop a lot of times and. I just could not, I couldn't stop it. So what pushed you to that point? The, the incremental use that got to the point of junkie, like, was there thoughts? Was it experiences? Is there something that, that caused that? Well, yeah, you know, from my past, you know, a lot of trauma, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of trauma from my youth and things. I mean, trauma from my, from these experiences too, you know, all these different things. It's like, you know, you, you have something traumatic happen to you. So you act in a certain Mm -hmm. way, which causes more trauma, which compounds your trauma, which comp, you know, and it's just this slippery slope. And you, and then by the time you, you know, get your, pull your head out of the sand, it's like, Mm -hmm. you're so fucked up. You don't even know where to begin. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what it was, was, uh, I, I'd been doing drugs to cope with myself the whole time. Honestly, I just didn't, like I said, I didn't like myself. I didn't have that confidence in myself. Um, I was just, I pretended like I did, but I didn't. And uh, heroin was the ultimate tranquilizer. Heroin got rid of all of those thoughts mm. and made me and made my lizard brain come on where all I, I didn't, I didn't have any bad feelings about myself. I was just high, you know, and I, and that was comfortable for me. That was like what I'd been looking for. Mm. And, you know, so of course I went back to the well and back to the well and back to the well. And, and, you know, heroin is a substance that you go back, you go to that well more than a few times. And now you've got legitimate physical addiction issues. It's not just oh, I want this. It's no, if you don't get this, you're going to get the flu, dude. You know, yeah, like that's, yeah. and that's it. You know, you get 24 hours every day to try to get, get a fix or you're smoked. And once you're there and it's not, and now you have the, but you still have that mental craving. It's mm-hmm. still really powerful, but you have a physical craving on top of it. And those two combined is why so many people unfortunately die and, and never make it out of that hole. What you just said, I, I want to touch on. Why is it so prominent in Salt Lake and Utah County? I think it goes back to the religious aspect we talked about okay. with the, with the structure and the expectations and the, in the hard lining that all these kids get so young, there's so much pressure on you. You know what I mean? You can't even, I mean, God forbid you're born gay or something. You know right. what I mean? Like, holy shit. Like, you know, it's like any, anything, you know, it's like if you're outside of that norm, like you feel so pressured so quickly. And I think that, like I said, those drugs are the ultimate tranquilizer. They will make you forget your problems in a scary way. So when you got these problems that you've been holding for so many years and you find that 
that drink of cold water that you think it is. It's really not, you know, it's mm -hmm. poison, but you know, in that moment you might think so it's really easy to get stuck to it. And that's what I, and that's what I see. I see kids wanting to escape from their reality of the pressures that are put on them uh, and the social norms that they question, but are unable to question. Right. And so they, they, they tranquilize their, their thoughts and then mm -hmm. they end up dying. Unfortunately, you know, it's terrible. So, and you're at rock bottom at this point, right? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. How did you break through that? So long process. So it, it was at 18. It was the first time I was like, I really got to stop doing this. I'm going to die. You mm -hmm. know? And I, I, and I would get these like spurts where I would just like white knuckle and stop doing it for like a month. And then I would like, Oh, I'd fall back into it. Cause I was still around those old people and everything else. And you know, when I was 19, I was really, really bad. I just turned 19 and I was like, you know, I was shooting up probably six times a day just to stay level. And I was, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't sell drugs anymore because I do them all, you know, <laughs> that wasn't happening anymore. Like mm -hmm. I was not, it, Scarface had, had died long ago, you know, there was no, there was no level of, drugs. Yeah, there was no level of like holding it down at that point. Yeah. I, was, I was really fucking up. I, but I still needed the money and, and I would try to like, you know, sell some drugs here, do this or whatever I could do to try to make money. Cause I didn't have a, a real job, obviously. I couldn't hold a job. I tried to get a job and I, I just couldn't hold it. At, at 19, it, it was really bad. And I hadn't been in trouble as an adult at this point. I'd been keeping my nose clean somehow for the whole, like that whole year, even though it was the craziest year of my life, probably even still to this date, you know, as far as what I was doing and the substance I was putting in my body and the, and the people I was being around and the mm -hmm. stuff that was going on, it was really extreme. So uh, at 19 though, I was, I decided, oh, I, I'm, I need, I need money. You know, I kind of, I'm, I'm still to that point where I, I'm trying to figure out how to supply this habit without like robbing a bank or something, you know? So, <laughs> right, <laughs> which right. never goes well, let's be honest. <laughs> uh, I don't think, I don't think any sort of robbery ever goes, goes great. So that's so true. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, so I was still trying to keep myself out of jails and prisons at this point. And, uh, I started selling, I started selling weed and I, I tried to sell like just a small bag to an old friend of mine. And he actually, he actually ratted on me. He set me up to the cops and like, it was literally like $50 worth of weed. Wow. And these Linden, Linden police force dude came, came mobbing on me with bulletproof vests and SUVs on the state street. Yeah. I was trying to meet my buddy at the Taco Bell to give him a bag of weed. Bro. Yeah, bro. Like, what's show me your ID hand on the gun. Right. It's like, okay, dude, you know, yeah. like, and, and they ended up charging me with a felony for that. Right. I got hit what? with a felony. Yeah. So that, at this point I'm like, shit, I'm a felon, you know, I'm, gonna go to and they and then you know they trump up all the charges so it's like you're within a thousand feet of a school so it's a it's a higher level of felony what? so that when you go to court all you can do is plea down to the shit that they gave you that was already too extreme it's a total dude honestly we can get into that but yeah no the, no i, I get utah, it I, the utah correctional system there the utah uh utah laws is, is terrible dude honestly they're worse in the country one of the very worst bro, i feel that so i went to rose um so I, I was born in rose park and then we moved out of rose park when i was yeah, 10 11 12. And then we went to North Salt Lake, Bountiful mm -hmm. area, right? So we went from uh, lower middle class or, you know, whatever that that's defined as in Rose Park, Utah, to upper middle class. And I'll tell you, like that shit that you just said in that upper middle class, white neighborhoods, like they don't play, bro. <laughs> Wild. Kick your door in an AR-15, <laughs> bro, because you, you took your grandma's prescription. <laughs> Dude, they like, do not play, bro. That doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, it was like, okay, so, you know, and it, am I up to no, am I doing some shit I probably shouldn't be doing? Sure. But yeah, the, the level, the actual gravity of what mm -hmm. I was doing, like it's, at least what I was like caught for at this moment mm -hmm. was like, you know, I, what in my mind, it was like how stupid, but also, oh shit, because it doesn't matter how stupid you think it is. It's the law. Like, 100%. so now here we go. And I'm in the adult system. So 
Uh, I, I, at the same time, so I got arrested for that. And, and that you was spent like, two years in prison for that. No. So okay. we're getting there. Okay. Once I caught that, I was like, shit, I don't want to be a felon. Like I still throughout all this, I still held on to this thing inside of me that was like, one day I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to be some, but I'll be successful. I'm going to go to school. I'm going to, you know, I thought I might be a pilot. I thought I might do something else. I was like, I'm going to get, I always told myself I was going to get this under control some way, somehow, mm -hmm. uh, at some point. Uh, but once that happened and I realized like, shit, dude, you're going to get stuck with a felony. And that's all these things that you thought you were going to do are not going to be possible. Like you're right. just not, it's just not real. It's not realistic anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't, I was actually talking to the Marines at the time. I was talking to the national guard because I was trying to just go and disappear. I was like, maybe if I go to boot camp, I'll stop doing this shit. I'll just, mm -hmm. I won't have access to it. I'm just going to go to war. You know what I mean? Like right, right. that'll be better than what I'm doing. And then I caught that charge. I was actually, I, I had a meeting with, with a Marine recruiter the day I caught that charge. Oh shit. Yeah. So I was like, that was like, oh shit. Now I, and then I told them what happened. They were like, well, let's see how it plays out. But dude, honestly, you, we don't think we, and then once it played out, I called them like, we can't take you. You know what I mean? Like you, mm, you're, we, you don't meet right. the criteria in that time though. I, I decided that I needed to go to rehab. Now I couldn't fool myself anymore. You're an adult. You have a felony charge. This is going really badly. You've got to stop doing this. And then I overdosed two times across two weeks, like I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that was kind of my breaking point. You know, I was living out of my car. I was just like, I was just down to die, dude. I didn't even care anymore. I was, I was super, not just heroin, I was addicted to benzos, I was doing a lot of Xanax. I was doing a lot of cocaine. I was, I mean, anything I could get my hands on, I was doing essentially. Mm -hmm. And I just finally kind of came to, I, I woke up after overdosing and I just had a realization that like, all right, dude, like you've, you've played your lives out, man. Like you're going to do this again. The next time you're probably not waking up. I just had this feeling that, I don't know, like grace, whatever you want to call it of like this moment of like, okay, whoa, what the hell, what happened? Waking up in a tent, there's a needle sticking out of my arm. My heart's beating all weird. I can't feel my hands and my feet. It's like 3 p.m. the next day. I shot up when the sun was going down. You know what I mean? So it's like, in that moment, I realized like, dude, you should be dead, bro. Like you should be, and I already had a lot of friends that had died at this point. So I, I realized that like, for some reason you're still breathing, but you don't get another chance. It's kind of how I felt, is like the feeling I got was like, Okay, dude, like you got one, but you better, you better quit fucking around. So I literally went, I, I went home and I knocked on the door and I told my parents I needed help like that literally from that moment. I was like, I don't, I don't want to die. You know what I mean? I, I just, and it wasn't even for myself. I just imagined my family at my funeral mm -hmm. and like what that would do to them. And I was like, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to go out like that, dude. Fuck mm -hmm. that. You know, I'm going to, it, it wasn't about me anymore. Like I didn't care about myself. I just didn't want to do that to the people that, that still loved me and cared about me. Cause even throughout all this stuff, you know, the, you know, having the issues, you know, maybe, you know, gripes about, you know, how you're being, you know, your whole upbringing went about, like I still had a close family unit and I believe that they were doing their best. And I, and I have a close relationship with them still to this day. I still mm -hmm. love my family. Mm -hmm. Um, but in that moment, I just was like, I, I don't want to go out like this. Like I'm, I'm not going to do this. So I went to rehab and that was when I, that was when I kicked heroin. I never did heroin again after that day. Wow. Right. I, uh, I, I never did a hard drug as you would call it again after that day, that was it for me. I was like, no more, dude, I don't care what I have to do. Like, but this is not an option anymore. Like I will die and I'm not, and I'm not going to die. Mm -hmm. So you had that existential crisis and then that existential crisis allowed you to transcend self and look at your, the way that your decisions and actions could potentially affect your family and the people you love the most. Yes. Is there any way to do that without getting to that place? Honestly, dude, it could be, it can be controversial, but I'm going to go back just a little bit before this because I didn't have this realization from that moment, to be honest with you. Okay. That was just like the thing that like drove it home, mm -hmm. but I had actually, so 
you know, you growing up, you, you know, smoking weed, you might eat some mushrooms, you, you know, got your kids play around with psychedelics. And I'd always, and I always had, but mm-hmm. when I was younger and I didn't have as much pain and trauma, you know, the psychedelics were fun. By the time I was 16, I didn't like psychedelics anymore because wow. they, it was not fun. Mm-hmm. I was going to really bad places of my past and I just wasn't, I did, it wasn't, it wasn't a party drug, dude. I never, I did not have, I had bad trip after bad trip after bad trip. And I was just like, can't hey, my Bringing, bringing up shit that you needed to process yes. that was in your psyche. And, and you're I, like, I don't want to deal with this shit. I want to party. Yeah. I don't want to deal with that I'm shit. I'm trying to hang out with these <laughs> girls and my homies <laughs> over here. Yeah. And I'm like thinking about the trauma from when I was, you know, a little boy, you know, it's wow. like that kind of stuff that yeah. I'm just not in the place to deal with. But there was a day when I'd kind of done that thing where I'd stop doing heroin for like a month, you know, again, just white knuckling it, but I was still doing a lot of cocaine and other stuff like that to maintain. And I was with some buddies that didn't really do stuff like that. And they wanted to eat some mushrooms. So I Mm -hmm. ate these mushrooms with them. And I remember, dude, like they hit me and it was not fun. I'd been having a lot of like arguments with my mom at this point because she thought I was going to die. You know, she was constantly Mm -hmm. like looking at me like I was a dead body, dude. Mm -hmm. I was all emaciated. Like I was not, you know, God, (laughs) terrible, dude. Like my mom legitimately was like, thinking I was on my last days on earth kind of thing. Yeah. So, uh, but I was so in like entwined in this addiction and this chaos that I couldn't even, I couldn't empathize with anybody else but myself. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, dude, honestly, I ate those mushrooms and I f- was like, it was like my body got put, I got put into my mom's body Wow. and I looked at myself. I remember, dude, I was under a pine tree smoking a cigarette and I had like an, this like projectile I don't know, projection experience mm-hmm. where like I became my mom and I looked at myself from my mom's lens and I felt all of her emotions towards me. And it was so intense, dude. And it was so scary. And it was so, it was really fucked up. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, this, this is, is what my mom, this is what I'm doing to my mom. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is what I'm doing to the people that care about me. Like, holy fuck, dude. And it was like, it was so scary, dude. I literally like I cut the party short and I went home and waited for my mom to wake up so I could tell her that I loved her and that mm. I was sorry. Wow. But but and like that never left me, but I was still so stuck in that chaos I couldn't stop doing what I was doing. Mm-hmm. But now I felt guilty. I I had had that paradigm shifting moment where it was like, "Whoa, like I got snapped out of this, you know, unconscious chaos into mm-hmm. a moment of of conscious realization." through something that I didn't even mean to take like that, you know? So it was like this moment that was like, it's it's crazy to talk about. And I've actually told my mom about this. I told my mom about this a long time ago and you know, it was pretty crazy, but um, that was like, it just, it just stuck with me. And then when that happened in that, that tense situation, that overdose situation, once again, boom, I imagined my mom finding my body and I felt all those emotions again. I was like, we can't do that, dude. Like, we're not going to do that. And that's when I was like, Hey, no more of this shit. I'm not doing this anymore. Wow. Right. So it was like a couple things that kind of capitalized and made that happen that were just pure fate, maybe. Plant medicine saved your life. Plant medicine saved my life, dude, wow. on accident, to be honest <laughs> with you. On accident. I was trying to party, bro. Oh my God. I know. That's <laughs> I've done plant medicine growing up and I it would I could never do it recreationally. Yeah. Not because I would go to dark places, but because the insight was so profound. I just always had this reverence for it. I'm yeah. Like, oh yeah, you guys want to take mushrooms? Cool. I'll take it. You guys party. I'm going to go to the backyard. I'm going to lay down. I'm going to look up at the clouds. Yeah. <laughs> like that was my trip. Yeah. I'm like, I'm about to puke. All right. This is when it's going to get serious. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's the way. And I, you know, I'd done it by accident that yeah. way, but it was never like, it was never presented like that to bro, me. You know, it was always just like, you know, hey, bro, we're going to eat these mushrooms yep. and this ecstasy and we're yep. going to go to this rave. Like yeah. that's how it was like presented to me always. It was <laughs> yeah. never like, hey, bro, take this and find out about yourself. Yeah. Like, no, no. And it was never presented like that for me, yeah. but I was just like, you guys i don't want to go to rave i'm gonna go to the backyard yeah yeah (laughs) so it's that's powerful it was super crazy dude and like that was so but you know this is this my story is a story of like i didn't just 
grow and become myself. Yeah. I took steps, you know, these were different steps in my progression as a, as a human being, you know, mm -hmm. and these, the first like, step that I carved out of that mountain was just empathizing and, mm -hmm. and looking at myself from a, from an outside perspective of what I've been doing and mm -hmm. what I've been doing to myself. And then it was, you know, getting the courage to do something about it, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's just so on and so forth, these things. And, you know, these ledges, some of these ledges that I got on weren't fun ledges. They were terrible points in my life, but it was one step above where I was 100%. and I did it and I refused to go back down. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm here. Yeah. You know, so rehab, kick the drugs, everything's going good. I get out. I'm so stoked to you know, live a life where I'm not doing drugs and I'm not doing all this crazy stuff to myself, but I haven't dealt with my trauma yet. Mm -hmm. I've just, I'm just, I just don't want to do drugs, but I haven't addressed why I'm doing drugs. Mm -hmm. Right. And within seven months, I think it was within, you know, honestly, probably three months, you know, I'd started to train again. I was, you know, I was like, I'm fighting. This is something I want to do now. You know, I want to at least give this a shot. I don't know where it's going to go and, but I'm going to go to school and I'm going to do this. It was like, you know, I could probably get this charge lessened over the next few years. I could maybe still do some of the stuff I want to do. You're how old at this point? I'm 20. Can we get a brief background on your, your skill set in MMA? Were you, did you do wrestling as a kid? Did mm -hmm. you do boxing? What did you do? Yeah. So I, I grew up wrestling, you know, mm -hmm. when I was like real little, I probably got made to wrestle two or three seasons as a little kid, just because the parents tell you what to do, right. what to do. And then went back to when I was, I want to say like in sixth and seventh grade, I wrestled again, but then it was kind of like, Oh, I, I played baseball. I played other sports and, and wrestling for me. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't like the thing that I like thought about all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, once I found MMA fighting is like, okay, fighting's cool. And then I, and then I wanted to wrestle when I found MMA at 14, I wanted to wrestle again because it would make me a better fighter. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's when I started boxing a little bit. That's when I started going to like Muay Thai classes and jujitsu classes at 14. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then wrestled again in high school for, for pretty good high school for Pleasant Grove. Right. Wrestled a couple seasons for them. Um, and just kind of honed and just was like, even it's funny because even throughout the crazy stuff I was doing, I was still like building some skills somehow. I was still making my way to these practices. I was still mm -hmm. getting into these places. I was still watching these fights. I was still was almost like peripherally growing mm -hmm. into who I was going to be like unconsciously just because it was fun, mm -hmm. but I didn't see where I was going to go with it. It was mm -hmm. just like, oh, I'm, this gives me confidence, makes me feel good about myself and I'm good at it. So I'm going to keep doing it. Right. Right. So those two things were kind of like dually meeting. And when I, when I got out of rehab and I, when I was in rehab, I met, you know, uh, some cool people. I'd, I'd already known Court McGee before this, right mm -hmm. from the gym and heard his story, but in rehab, he came and told a story and really inspired me to be like, Oh, well, if he could do it, I could do it. You know, right. we became close friends and we're still friends to this day. I really wanted to give this a shot and I was training and I was doing these things. I was going to practices, but I'd gotten in trouble for that felony and I was on house arrest. And, you know, long story short, I screwed up. Uh, my, my PO got mad at me and took away my privileges to go train. And now mm -hmm. I couldn't train anymore. So that was the only positive thing I had in my life. Their punishment was to not let me go to the fight gym anymore. So now I'm just at home thinking about myself oh, all the shit. time. And I had like a month left, two months left on this house arrest. And in those two months, I just deteriorated mentally. I wasn't around the people I needed to be around. Mm -hmm. I was on my, you know what I mean? It just, and the first day I got off, I went to a party. Like mm -hmm. I'd just been waiting to go to a party and I went around some old friends and did a lot of drinking and relapsed on some pills and I was drunk, you know, and I, I woke up and was like, man, I really screwed up. And this is where shit really hit the fan. This is like November 11th of 2012. Uh -huh. I, I went out with some old friends and long story short, without getting into too many details, uh, we decided we were going to rob a local drug dealer. Right. So we did. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was pretty intoxicated when I did it. I'd taken a lot of pills and some stuff like that. And to be honest with you, I, I remember a lot of it, but I probably don't remember all of it. I don't remember all of it. I remember like some key points to be mm -hmm. honest with you and kind of woke up in jail. Honestly, mm -hmm. like I kind of came to like, I remember like spurts of what was going on, 
but then I just basically woke up in jail and had oh, shit. the craziest felony charges on me, dude. Like home invasion, robbery, gang enhancement, oh, you know, shit. entering a dwelling. Like, I mean, dude, it was like life sentence caps on a lot of these charges. I think I had, I think I had three or four charges that were five years to life, uh, minimum mandatory in the state penitentiary. Right. Like that, that was wow. over my head all with mm -hmm. like a gang enhancement because we did it with, there was three people involved. And in Utah, they have all these crazy laws that allow them just to like bury you if you, you know, you do something crazy. So, mm -hmm. um, and then long story short, my two co-defendants that honestly, dude, I was like, I'd actually been doing good. These two guys were kind of still up to no good. And mm -hmm. you know, you can't blame anybody for your actions or anything, but, uh, I definitely, uh, wasn't my yeah. idea. Let's put it that way. Uh, and once, when it all came down to it though, they both turned state's evidence and one, one got out in three months and one got out in six months and I got buried and they sent me to prison for 40 months. Right. At 20 years old. So say that, that last, what, what did they do that got them out earlier? Uh, it turned state's evidence. So they snitched. Oh yeah. shit. Yeah. Okay. They snitched on me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They wrote statements and took the stand and talked about how these, it was all my fault basically. And oh. went home to see their families and I went to prison. Hey, everyone's real until it, until they get the books thrown at them. Right? Oh yeah. Everybody, you know, and I, I, at the time, you know, I was, it made me really kind of bitter, you know, like, oh man, these are good friends of mine too. I know because I was like 12. So talk about trust issues, you know, like wow, totally made me like, I don't fuck with anybody anymore after right. this. And it's still honestly something to this day that I deal with. Like, I don't really have a lot of close people to me. Like I have mm -hmm. a very small network of people that I actually associate with on a daily basis because I've just learned like, right. I don't, I don't let anybody in the circle that I don't, or I only let you in far as far into the circle as you can be without me like risking anything. Does that make sense? Like, mm -hmm. it's almost like I've had to like, okay, like that was so extreme. I, right. you know, I, you thought, I thought, I really mm -hmm. thought I could trust these guys to be honest with you. I really did. And I was arguing with my attorney the whole time. Dude, they'd never do that to me. They'd never, and I refused to write oh, statements. They'd man. never do that to me. And then they both took the stand and I was like, and it was too late, you know? So yeah. at that point it was like, well, you didn't stand up for yourself even. So right. see ya. Like I said, man, you know, things happen the way they happen. And, uh, I had to learn how to let go of that while right. I was in prison. Cause you know, shit, dude, you sit, you sit in these places for that long and you associate that with somebody else. I just, you know, I just took, you know, extreme responsibility of my actions and, mm -hmm. you know, you can blame and say this and say that, but the fact of the matter is, is I, I did rob that dude. I did do those things. Mm -hmm. So it's like, whether they snitched on me or not, whether they betrayed anything else, like I still have my shit. I shouldn't have been doing that. I need to figure myself out. That doesn't mean that I need to be their homie again or like, you know, make, make up with them or anything like that. But like, I need to, to forget about them almost or forgive them in a way mm -hmm. to allow myself to be who I am, yeah. you know? So that was a huge challenge of mine, but the next 40 months were pretty gnarly, dude. I, you know, at 20 years old, I fished into prison. I remember fishing into Utah state prison and I remember like after this, you know, you strip after the strip search and everything else and getting chained to a pipe and I'm sitting there and I'm like, yeah, I know you've been in jail for like 10 months, mm -hmm. you know, but now you're in prison. Like right. it's just a different animal. Different, yeah. And like, I remember sitting in there and just, I looked over this guy next to me, dude. It was like, I mean this, that prison, they moved it now, luckily, but it was so decrepit, dude. I don't know how they even house people in there. Like there's in the winter, bro, let's put it this way on some of these cell blocks, the windows are all broken out. And in the winter, you got to break the ice on your toilet to take a piss. Oh shit. You know I mean, it's like, dude, decrepit, right. rusted. No, like paint falling off like i mean looking like a condemned building that you got that you got to live in and it's full of the craziest people you've ever heard of in utah yeah dude <laughs> wow yeah dude it's terrible like yeah um and just like not a lot of care you know not a lot of just i mean at that point you're just getting you're just getting put somewhere so you're not around normal people mm -hmm. and then it's just the, it's the jungle dude so you know that's like uh those in that moment i remember that was another like realization of like okay like I remember looking at this guy next to me, who's a younger guy too, you mm -hmm. know, and we both kind of looked, it was our, we were both fish. They call it fishing in, like you're a fish when mm -hmm. you first go to prison. 
And I remember looking at him like another, we were both fish and we both looked at each other and just kind of like gave each other like a little like sideways smile. And I was like, we really fucked up this time, didn't we? And he's like, yeah, dude. Like, yeah, we did. And I was like, we did it, dude. This is not good. <laughs> like, right. Right. I have to stay here. Right. I'm not that's going what, home. is that three and a half years? Four years? So, yeah. So that was like, uh, I did, you know, it was 10 months fighting that uh -huh. case. And then I went to prison for another two and a half years. Okay. Right. So, yeah. and that was bouncing me around all these different counties and different stuff mm -hmm. like that. But, you know, during that time, uh, yeah, I was going to say, what did you pull out of? I'm sure you had some like epiphanies, pivotal moments in during that time frame. I taught myself how to be a man in prison. Wow. Honestly, I, I, when I went to prison at 20 years old, uh, I was just a kid, you know, I didn't, I didn't really have a lot of life experience. I'd never had to like get myself, you know, I'd never, I mean, sure. I went to school and things like that, but I never had had to do anything like responsible on my own. I'd never like had like a huge goal that I chased or anything like that. And um, I like a, fighting had always been this thing that I wanted to do. It's really all I wanted to do, but I was like, like I said, didn't have the confidence and like believe in myself enough. And the, the, the silver lining to the situation was these charges will not be reduced, bro. And if they are, that's going to be a real long time. Like you're looking at 10 years before you can even think about that of being perfect. Uh, so you're, you are scarlet lettered, bro. And you're not dealing with a drug charge. You're dealing with like, I got, I got stuck with robbery. You know what I mean? Like that's like, you go to an employer and robbery is on your- Was it armed robbery? No, they're not okay. armed. It, okay. it was just, just regular robbery. regular yes. robbery. Yeah, but- Just regular. I mean, just, <laughs> just regular. <laughs> you know, just, just regular old robbery. Just regs. Know, nothing, nothing too crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but that was like, uh, but that type of charge, it was like, even when I got out, oh, we'll get to that, but that's just such a bad charge to have to. Like, mm -hmm. that's not one that you no. can be like, listen, it's not how it seems. It's like, it's like, no, nah, yeah, bro. Right, like, exactly. I don't know about that, yeah. you know? So that was where I realized, like, I just looked around at the guys in there, you know, and what they were doing and what their lives looked like. You know, the guys that were twice my age that had done the same thing I'd done mm -hmm. and all these things. And, you know, there's not a lot that I'm afraid of, but becoming one of those guys was so scary to me listen to these guys trash their baby mamas on the phone and for 20 bucks on their books so they can buy more ramen noodles and they can, you know what I mean? It's like, right. dude, you're 50, bro. Like yeah. you got three kids across two, <laughs> two women that you treat like shit. You know, it's like, man, like, and, and you're, and all you're talking about is, you know, when this next shipment of drugs is going to come in the prison so you can get high again. Mm. You know, it's like, whoa, dude. Like, and, and, and you were me once upon a time, mm -hmm. you know? And like, they would tell me that like, oh, you think you're going to be somebody, but you're not. Mm -hmm. Like guys would actively, actively tell you that they're just mm -hmm. crabs and they want to pull you back down. So pretty early, you know, I set some goals for myself of like, you know what? I, I, I had this moment, dude, honestly, where I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, but I, I wanted to fight. And I realized that like fighting was probably the only thing I could do that I wanted to do anymore. Mm -hmm. So it was like, almost like I pigeonholed myself into doing what I wanted to do right. somehow. Like yeah. fate just was like, Hey, guess what, dude? Like you can't really do anything else you want to do other than fighting. This is the mm -hmm. only avenue that's going to accept you now. You're not going to be a pilot. You're not going to the military. You're not doing any of that shit. It's not happening. It's off the table, but you could be a professional fighter and mm -hmm. the sky's the limit. So for me, it was like, you know, you can't kill what's already dead. You right. know, it's like, I'm, I have nothing to lose. Like these other guys, like, and that's the other thing too. Like when I fight, like mm -hmm. I have no problem switching that gear, dude. Like everybody's like, oh, this mental spot and this mental spot. I'm like, bro, mm -hmm. like I live in that mental spot. Mm -hmm. I like, and everyone's like, oh, you could do something else. Not that I'd be happy doing, not that I want to do. This <laughs> right. is all I want. This is what I want to do. You right. know, all the other stuff I can't do. So I'm, I'm so invested, bro. I will die in there for it. Like mm -hmm. I do, there's no backing out. There's other, for me, that's like my mentality. And mm -hmm. that's why I've had, I feel like, I believe I've had the success so far in fighting and I'll continue to have the success is because I don't go in there worried about, oh, am I going to get hurt? Or is he going to mm -hmm. check this kick? Or is he going to do that? Like, it's like, no, dude, like I'm either killing you or I'm killing both of us, mm. but you're not getting out of here in one piece, mm. no matter how this plays out.
You Let's know? So go. It's like, so that know? makes you a really dangerous opponent. Yes. Is that why, and now I'm, you know, I'm moving a little bit forward here, but is that why it's hard for you to get fights? I think so. Yeah, probably. Bro, <laughs> bro like, like, cause I, I, there's a couple podcast episodes where like, I had this fight, he pulled out. I had this fight, he pulled out. I had this guy, you know what I mean? And it's just one thing after the other. Why? I think it's like you said, you know, some of that. And I think going back to the prison thing, uh -huh. I spent that time, like, I haven't always been like this big or like this, like physical, you know, I spent- Yeah, you're bigger than than you look on camera. Yeah. Which I'm, is weird because it's usually opposite. Usually opposite. <laughs> I'm pretty big right now, <laughs> yeah. though, honestly. Uh, but once I decided this is what I was going to do, it mm -hmm. became this like super scary thing that was like, it was scary enough to motivate me to like do it. Yeah. You know, it was like doing something, like just going to school and becoming an accountant or something was like, dude, I'll just- I don't know if I'll be able to keep my life together if that's what I got to go do. You know, I've got to, I mean, some people can do that, but I'm just not built like that, dude. Like I never have been. But you know, for me, it was, I, I once I decided that this was what I was going to do, I went full force, dude. It, while mm. I was in prison, I was writing out training blocks. I was, you know, for my birthday one year, I think I had my mom send me a textbook on anatomy. Like I realized I was like, okay, hey, I can be like a private contractor, personal trainer that to, to pay my bills because nobody's going to hire me. And then I can just train and, and then I'll just become a fighter. I was like, okay, I, 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 re I literally had this conversation with myself. I was like, you can go to school for four years and get a bachelor's degree, or you can literally live on the mat for four years and then you get a bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. And then you can do two more for your master's and then two more for your doctorate. And like, that's the way I looked at it. It's like, when I uh, put these hours mm -hmm. into this profession, I will have this level of competence that will allow me to earn a living doing this. Mm -hmm. And I literally made that agreement with myself when I was in a prison cell. And I remember being like, knowing that I knew not what I was getting, like I, I'd mm -hmm. seen guys do this and I knew how hard it was. And I think that's why I didn't have the confidence early on, mm -hmm. but I knew what I was getting myself into was going to be super gnarly, way gnarlier than I even could understand. Like, like if that makes sense, cause you just don't know until you actually do it. And, but I made myself a promise. I remember, I'll remember the day. Like I remember when I really decided to do this when I was in prison, like, no dude, I'm going to be a professional fighter, not just a professional fighter, but I'm going to fight at the highest level that the world can offer. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be a household name by the end of this. And mm -hmm. I won't stop until I do. Well, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, there's no other option for me. I'm mm -hmm. just gonna become the best I can be. And every day was training. I was known in there, dude, nobody would work out with me because I'd just bury you. Like I, I'd never kept a workout partner the whole time I was in prison. Mm -hmm. Like I was always, always, always doing something. I'd make mitts out of toilet paper and socks and have my buddy hold mitts for me in the cell. You know what I mean? We were, I was just doing, I mean, we were always trying. I remember I made like a double end bag out of <laughs> toilet paper and a sock and like braided sheets that I'd hang under the stairs when the guards dope. weren't around and I'd try to work on my shit. And like, I was just always trying to do something to make myself better in there. And I was reading and I was staying out of shit. I wasn't gambling. I wasn't doing drugs. I wasn't doing any of that. I was locked in and this is what I was going to do is my destiny. And I managed to, to maintain that level of, you know, uh, attention and, and dedication throughout that whole stay. And when I got out, you know, it was like ground run and found fight gym. Uh, I think I had, I managed to get a job for the last like year I was in there. And I think I saved up, they were paying me like $5 a day, dude, to bust my ass. And I think I saved up like 400 bucks. And that 400 bucks is when I bought my first like rash guard. Mm -hmm. I bought a rash guard. I bought <laughs> fight shorts. I fought, I bought a gym bag and I think I bought a pair of shin pads and my brother gifted me a pair of boxing gloves when I came home. <laughs> Right. And that's what that's I had, yeah. you know, and I went to the gym and I started training and, you know, it wasn't all perfect. It wasn't all great. You know, I was like, I, you know, some people, you know, you walk in there with an attitude and the way you, and you're like, I want to be great. And some mm -hmm. people take offense to that, not even offense. They're just like, maybe like threatened by that, whatever, you know? So mm -hmm. 
you know, I found my niche eventually and I earned those people's respect. And mm -hmm. within six months, had my first fight, knocked the guy out in like 40 seconds, mm -hmm. went on to have an undefeated amateur record. I was the local champion in Utah, you know, defended my belt too. And then turned pro, fought the toughest guy to Las Vegas, knocked him out in two minutes and just have been on a tear ever since. You know, I'm as a pro, I'm six and zero right now. My only decision was at 170 and I had mm -hmm. COVID the whole camp. I just, oh, I just out wrestled shit. him. I was really struggling. In that. Oh, we it, saw that fight last night. Yeah, 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 that was that. I had a dude. My I had actually had uh, I got COVID like four weeks before that fight, and my heart was doing crazy shit. It was like throwing weird rhythms. Even in the fight, I actually uh -huh. I got medically suspended after that fight because the doctors like my heart rate wouldn't come back down. Oh shit! You know, but I just refused to pull out because so many people had pulled out on me. Right. You know, like you said, you see, mm -hmm. this, it was six fights in a row. Right. Over a year and a half that guys either showed up fight week and, and chickened out or made mm -hmm. weight and had something happen or caught COVID or whatever else it was six fights dude and it was like stalling my career and it mm -hmm. was like dude like i i can't just like I, I to get into the ufc to get into any one of these organizations they want to see a certain number of fights they want to see some volume right so it was like i needed i need that volume and i wasn't getting that volume for whatever reason mm -hmm. you guys are the way i fight scary the way i look scary right mm -hmm. i spend a lot of time developing my body so i look a certain way i'm an athlete you know which some of these other guys don't do right getting to that point mm -hmm. um in my career where, you know, my career was stalling and it was like so disheartening, honestly, like it was just where, like, what phase, what year were we in? This no. is probably 2020. Okay. Right. Right around COVID time. Right. I had, I had a guy pull out like February, 2020 that made weight. Like literally I was backpacked going to the arena to go fight him. And my manager calls me and was like, dude, he's, he, he bailed. He's not going to come. He's like, he left. And I'm like, what do you mean he left? Right. Like we just waited and faced off. Like right. I just cut this weight. I'm like, I've been mm -hmm. up all night thinking about this fight. Like he's not going to fight for me. That? I think he said he had a head. To be honest, he said he had hemorrhoids, bro. Oh shit! Well, <laughs> so he had Maybe he did. Maybe he had some super gnarly hemorrhoids. I didn't put eyes on those hemorrhoids. Yeah. Personally, I think the doctor did and said they mm. were pretty bad. I guess he had to get have a surgery or something on his on his booty. But God bless. I hope it all worked out. <laughs> yeah, me too. I hope your me booty too. holes intact. Okay, so it wasn't an excuse. It was real Homer. Okay. Yeah, it might have been. I, I right. honestly yeah, yeah. like it, it's it's like hilarious. I mean, I yeah. Hopefully, I mean, I think it was legit and poor guy because that's highly embarrassing. But right. You know, I, I don't think I would have pulled out for a hemorrhoid personally. Right. I think I would have just taken some ibuprofen and a little yeah. preparation H and chuck those things, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think your actions and like the compelling future you have, that that compelling goal is going to reflect on the, those moment to moment actions. Like I just heard something that's really interesting because you, you're like, I want to be the greatest, right? Mm. Kobe Bryant also said something uh, on a podcast, a late, late great. He said he he never missed a game not when he had the flu not when he had an injury and then they asked him like why why don't why don't you miss games when you have injuries and the guy's like i've built this reputation i've gotten to this place to where the kid that's never seen me before is in that arena the the guy you know the person that just saved up enough to money to buy the ticket for the first time this is the first time they're ever going to see me play like i'm doing it for them yeah and that's like that that compelling like when you have this bigger than life goal like you're gonna show up even if you have hemorrhoids right yeah like some fighters will show up with broken hands like yep. you're just gonna show up and so dude that's powerful yeah that's i mean powerful. honestly i don't think i've in my professional career my my pro debut uh i had the flu i caught the mm -hmm. flu a week out and was doing like immunity ivs all week just trying to be level i was coughing junk up the whole time i was warming up like mm -hmm. i was worried about that fight i was like dude if this goes to the second round this is not gonna be fun right luckily i starched him <laughs> so right. it worked out <laughs> right but the next fight was probably one that i was relatively healthy for and mm -hmm. hit that guy with a head kick and knocked him out but then after that one the next one broke my foot 10 days before the fight the next one covid 
or no, sorry, the next one tore my MCL three weeks before oh, the fight. Shit. The next one, COVID mm-hmm. in the fight. And then this last one, I actually had to have, my shoulder was giving me so many problems before this last fight last year in August mm-hmm. that I had to have stem cell injections two weeks before just to try to save the fight. Oh, right. Shit. I almost didn't like that. That mm-hmm. was a fight that I'm like, my coaches were like, should we pull out? You know? And I was mm-hmm. like, no, we're not pulling out, mm-hmm. you know? And I ended up getting a quick finish, you know? So, mm-hmm. uh, but that's, you know, none of us, it was really frustrating to me, those situations, because I was like, man, like you commit everything you have and you're willing to do anything for it, but it's just not the same energy for most guys. Right. And that was a uh, definitely a frustrating uh, stalling point in my career. So, so right now, today, present day on the record, w- still same goal, still same goal, man. I, you know, I, uh, this last year was a tough year and I'll kind of now I'll tell you some stuff here. That's kind of new developments that I haven't really, uh, talked about publicly, mm-hmm. but you know, I fought most of my, I fought my whole career at 155. I've had a few fights at 170, like that one when I had COVID, right? It was mm-hmm. a last minute replacement. I went up a weight class. Uh, but every time I ever fought at 170, I was undersized, but I was like, I've always been a big lightweight, mm-hmm. but I've always been a little bit too small for welterweight. And I've mm-hmm. been in this weird position, uh, where I'm just constantly obsessing about my food. And it's like, I have to ride this line. And that started backfiring on me about two years ago. And I started to have some health problems that I didn't uh, originally associate with the weight cutting and with the dieting that I was mm-hmm. doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now I've come to realize that it's been a, a chronic issue of just underfeeding and undernourishing my body to try to maintain a weight that I can strike at 155 for, because I've been in a position where I can't find these fights. So if a good one comes up, I need to be ready, mm-hmm. right? I need to be ready for these opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I needed to maintain my weight in like the low seventies, which mm-hmm. for my body is, I've come to find out it's not healthy. It's not good for me. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, this last year I suffered a lot of injuries. I got rhabdomyolysis on my legs, getting ready for a fight in April of last year that had me, I couldn't even walk for two weeks. Dude. Oh. My legs would just cramp and lock up every time I try to walk. Uh, I blew up to like 195 pounds and just felt terrible, like esophagus inflamed. I couldn't mm. swallow. It was terrible, dude. So, and then literally got cleared to go back to practice and had a fight six weeks later. And that's when my shoulder was falling apart. And I was oh, throwing shit. up every day after practice because my body was just so beat up. I shouldn't wow. have taken the fight, but right. My manager at the time was like, we have to do this or you're not going to get in the UFC this year. Mm-hmm. And it was like, well, I th- and they'd been telling me all year that I was going to get in no matter what. Like you're on contender series this year. Mm-hmm. They've been telling me that, telling me that. Mm-hmm. And then I got rabdo and they're like, actually, you, you need to fight again. So I was like, well, shit, contenders is in mm-hmm. three months. Okay, I got to get a fight in, in six weeks so I can mm-hmm. make contender. And I went and knocked the guy out spectacularly. You know, I had a great Hell performance yeah. and I still didn't get the opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was like. Uh, and you know, since then I've, 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 I'd switched my management. I have a different management team now mm-hmm. and some stuff like that. Um, but that's beside, you know, kind of beside the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but going into this last year again, you know, I, I wanted to fight again before the year ended, even after the contender fell apart, I was like, Hey, let's just get another fight in. And I tried to take a fight and I ended up spiral fracturing my pinky toe, oh, like shit. somehow on the mat, like literally like my, like on the x-ray, my toe was just like a mush of bones, like just destroyed my toe somehow wrestling. I had to take time off. You know, I had to take like, you know, another six weeks off. And I was like, man, again, okay, missing that fight. Okay. We're going to get in a fight first thing we can. And then I got an opportunity to be on the ultimate fighter. Okay. Right. Yep. And, uh, the ultimate fighter. Right? Yes. This mm-hmm. current season that's about to air. So okay. I actually got selected for that and mm-hmm. I reported, you know, and everything I went to the, so I, I had four weeks from the time I, my hook, my, my foot was healed to go and like to train again, I had four weeks to get ready for the ultimate fighter. Okay. So I went nuts. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I hired a nutritionist. I did everything that I could to get my weight down, to do everything right. And honestly, I, I ended up being in really good shape when I checked into the hotel for the ultimate fighter. Mm-hmm. And this was, what's the time frame here? Year? This is in January. Okay. February. No, first week of February. Last, last yeah, year. This year. This year. This year. This is just barely. Yeah. Oh, okay. This is just happening. Yeah. Sorry. This is more recent. Oh, shit. Yeah. So okay. I was supposed to, this, this season with Conor McGregor, I was supposed to be on the season of the ultimate fighter. Right. 
I ended up going to the hotel. You know, I did, dude, I filmed so much material for them, dude, like walking around with this. I literally maxed out the SD card on the camera they gave me to like, you know, film my life. I, right. I put a lot of work in, dude, and I, I really mm -hmm. put my best foot forward and presented myself well and uh, went, went to this hotel. They quarantined us for 10 days while they did like, I did interviews with ESPN, UFC. I wow. did like all this stuff, dude. I did all the media. Mm -hmm. I did all these things, dude. And they were like, and there were some alternates there and stuff. And they were saying, hey, you know, a couple guys are probably gonna be alternates. So you might go home. We don't, we don't know yet. Mm. Uh, but I was, but then I kind of, by the end of the week, I was told, hey, you made the cut. Like you're in, dude. Like we love your story. We love your, you know, everything about yeah, you. Like you're, you're gonna get in kind of thing. You know, yeah. like it's, you're good to go. Yeah. And I was like, oh my god dude i'm gonna be on the ultimate fighter like this is gonna be awesome i'll be able to tell my story to mm -hmm. the world like oh, for me it's like you know fighting is is great and, and this has evolved now to like mm -hmm. now this is a platform and i have a, a duty to, to talk about this stuff because it can help a lot of people 100 and i was so excited you know what i mean like oh, dude i'm gonna be able to touch a lot of people's lives this is a big platform connor's gonna be on it you know mm -hmm. and uh long story short connor connor flew in with a couple of his buddies from ireland and was like hey if these guys aren't on my team because he had the prospects which i'm a prospect it was mm -hmm. prospects versus vests this season so it's guys who've washed out of the ufc and then guys that are trying to get into the ufc and that's like chandler's team versus mcgregor's team oh. that was the whole criteria right. of the show so i'd made i got a prospect spot one of the eight prospect spots well he came with a couple of his buddies that were prospects and was like if they're not on my team you know what i mean i'm not doing it and he basically stiff armed the ufc and the ufc you know being the UFC was like, yes, sir, you know, right. to Conor McGregor. And uh, the guy kicked me and a couple guys off the show, you know, and just sent us home with, with nothing, nothing coming kind of thing. So uh, super disheartening, dude. Honestly, it was really, really, uh, really bummed me out, dude. Cause like a lot of people had found out now and there was like, you know, a lot of attention and like, you finally got your moment and, you know, and then it's like, boom, just poofed in non-existence. And then to add, you know, to add to the mix, you know, when it rains, it pours while I was in that hotel quarantined, uh, I contracted a staph infection off some dirty gear they had to share. And that staph infection got inside of my knee. What? And yeah, I ended up in the hospital for five days with an aggressive staph infection inside my right knee. Super sick. Jack, I mean, I literally just got cleared to wrestle on my knee again two weeks ago. That's how wow. bad it damaged my knee. Right? So crazy staph infection, antibiotics, you know, can't walk, knee, dude, my whole leg turned red. I had a fever. Like, I was so sick, dude. I, like, I was like, I was going to die, man. Like, oh, shit. Yeah, so... And that, and that actually started happening that like, I literally had to get, like, and this is the thing is like, you know, you look at your, your whole situation and uh -huh. while it was so disheartening to have that happen to me and get, you know, to lose my spot on that show like that, this infection was in my knee already. Right. That's you know what, what I mean? I like say. I ended up in, right. I ended up going to the hospital to see what was wrong with me the next day and they ended up holding me. Right. So it's like. So how did you get that infection? I don't know. I think it was from, so my, the way they think, what they think happened was, uh, they were having us like, there's like 20 guys in this hotel that are all having to still work out. Mm -hmm. So they set up like a workout room, mm -hmm. but they only brought like a limited amount of gear for guys to train with. Right. So it's like, I'm hitting pads after this guy who hit pads after that guy, right. so on and so forth, but nobody's cleaning the gloves. Nobody's cleaning the pads. Nobody's cleaning the mat, you know? And mm -hmm. it's like, uh, I got like the last slot on one of these days, like a 4:30 PM, everybody already hit. And I remember putting these gloves on and they were like wet, dude. Uh, they were like wet. Gross, and yeah. it was just like, the room was gross, dude. And I would just uh, remember thinking in my head, like, this is a bad idea. Like I've been in the game long enough to know, like you get infections in places like this, you know? And I remember being like, well, this is bad. I need to take a shower after this. And I had like an ingrown toenail on my right foot. And I remember like, I just was like, I got to get through this. And what I'm going to do is say no and leave, like <laughs> piss the producers off. Like, right. no, I'm going to hit pads, you know? So right. I, I did my work and I went upstairs and I showered, I cleaned myself off, but I woke up that night and my foot was throbbing, dude. Oh, and I was shit. like, what the, f why is my foot throbbing? Like, it's not good. Mm -hmm. Cleaned it up. Okay. Got it under control. 
next day, man, my, I, so the next day I went and did another practice, but this time I freaking put on my armor, dude. I had long sleeves, both. Mm -hmm. I had shoes on everything. I was not going into that room without being covered, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, and I went in there and did my workout, but after that workout, my knee started to hurt. Mm -hmm. I was like, man, what do I do to my knee? And I, and I think I might've like hurt my bursa on my knee a little bit just because mm -hmm. I was like shooting takedowns and stuff that day. Um, but it just like went from like, ouch to like, whoa, what the heck's going on with this within like 24 hours. It's really painful. 40 hours, 48 hours after that, I was like, oh man, like I definitely burst my bursa. This sucks. Like it was really painful. Mm -hmm. And then that thing happened and then it turned and then it just turned the infection oh, took over. Shit. Cause it was, I think what happened from what the doctor says, damage the bursa in the knee infection gets introduced through the ingrown toenail migrates somehow through my bloodstream lodges itself into the damaged bursa causes an internal infection. Didn't know I had it. Cause that's the thing with a bursa. A bursa is painful. Like you pop a bursa, it's going to hurt, but like mm -hmm. you can work through it. That's why mm -hmm. I was like, I wasn't going to tell these guys about it. I was going to mm -hmm. fight on it. I don't care. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to take some ibuprofen and get it done. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lose this opportunity over a bursa mm -hmm. and get out of here, you know? So, um, I didn't say anything about it, but then, but it got infected, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe there's a little bit of grace there. Cause right. I wouldn't have told anybody if they would have let me in that house. I wouldn't have said nothing. That thing might've killed me. Oh, so shit. I've, you know, there might've been a little bit of grace there, right. you know? from, from the universe or God, or whatever you want to call it being like, Hey, you know, here's some, like, this isn't the one. Mm -hmm. And, uh, who knows, you know, I, I look at it now and, you know, even with Connor and the way he presents himself and how mm -hmm. he, you know, I, I don't know if this season would have been a good platform for me to share my story on anyway. True. So True. maybe that's part of it. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, I feel like all the times bad things have happened, bad things have happened in my life. Mm -hmm. Uh, when I come to the, when I come full circle on it, they end up being actually things that were like, good yeah so that's why i haven't been like super vocal about like oh the ufc this and the ufc that and mm -hmm. screwed me this and screwed me that because mm -hmm. you know it might have been a blessing in disguise you mm -hmm. know and you can only operate in your in your present moment it didn't work out right i'm still me i still have all those skills line me up with any one of those guys yeah. and i'll show you yeah and we'll get there yeah. you know so that's what we're doing Do you but have a message to connor or dana connor or dana share? honestly uh connor fuck you <laughs> uh dana Give me a shot, bro. Come on. Don't leave me out here hanging, bro. You said you would give guys like me that got burned an opportunity. Give me my opportunity, dude. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. I don't fight boring and I knock people out. Let's go. I love the perspective shift that you had, you know, given the staph infection, given everything. Because when I first heard that story, I was like, Connor. Yeah. That. Yeah. You know everybody's what I mean? pretty upset. Especially because I'm a Utah native, which I, I think that's the, where I want to kind of pivot. Now that we talked about that, uh, a lot of insight makes a lot more sense why you haven't been more vocal. What is next? Is it the next season of Tough? What What are you thinking? So what's next is uh, going back to kind of what I was talking about with my weight and like okay. how it's been a problem. And I just keep, mm -hmm. and the only times I'm getting these injuries is when I'm within striking distance of making weight. It's always mm -hmm. the last month before a fight. It's always, it's never when I'm like eating well and like taking care of myself. So I collaborate with my coaches and I'm going to move up to welterweight. So Ooh, cool. I'm not going to fight at 155 as mm -hmm. of now. We'll see if I revisit it in the future, but you know, I, I just realized I was like, man, I, my body wants to grow. I'm not a boy anymore. I'm a, I'm a grown man. I'm 30. Mm -hmm. I mean, I train with welterweights every day. None of them are stronger than me. None of them like hit harder than me. Like mm -hmm. none of them like are, there's nobody that I, and I train with like ranked guys that are in the UFC right now. You mm -hmm. know, like I, I see these looks all the time from, you know, these welterweights and even in the one seventies, I could still, you know, I was still not, you know, outsized or outstrength most of the time. Mm -hmm. So I decided, you know, recently that I'm going to quit beating my body up and I'm going to go back to what I used to do. And that's how do I make myself the most, the best athlete I can be mm -hmm. highest jumper, hardest hitter, 
best cardio, you know, everything. How do I make my body bulletproof? And it's not starving myself and going for hour long runs every day. Mm -hmm. It's, it's doing what I used to do, which, which is what got me here. And it's a lot, it's weight training, it's sprints, it's the long runs too. It's the wrestling and it's the mm -hmm. fueling my body and eating a lot of good food until I'm full. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't get fat. I just grow muscle. That's kind of how my body does it. I'm already 190 pounds today, dude. Wow. Yeah, I'm already 190. Yeah, you're solid at 190 yeah. right now. I'm going to get up to 200. And I'm going to break these dudes. <laughs> I'm going to be a 200-pound welterweight, dude. I'm not. Yeah. It's like, because uh, I can do that now. I'm, I've grown into my body, and I can do that now, and I'm confident. So I'm going to be fighting in either five weeks potentially in, in Arizona or maybe okay. two weeks after that in mm -hmm. San Diego. Okay. Either like an LFA or a Cage Warrior show just to get one in at mm -hmm. welterweight and, and get my feet wet and feel feel my new body. Mm -hmm. uh, and then from there, honestly, dude, I'm just trying to fight. I've, if if the UFC wants to give me a shot, if the UFC wants to put me on contender this year, great. If they don't, one championship's been offering me contracts for a year. Risen's been offering me contracts. The PFL tried to put me in as an alternate recently. There's opportunities across the board. I've always mm -hmm. dreamed of being in the UFC because mm -hmm. uh, that's what I grew up watching. And that's what like all the people I looked up to did. And I would still love for that to happen. But I feel like I've been so married to trying to force something to happen in the way I wanted to happen in my career. Mm -hmm that I haven't focused on just doing what I do well and letting the rest fall into place. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm going to do this year. I'm going to say yes a lot and I'm going to kick a lot of people's asses and mm -hmm. whoever wants to pay me and pick me up can pay me and pick me up. Right. You know, and I'll be an asset to whoever wants to do it. Yeah. I mean, cause you are an asset and, and like you said, your story is so impactful, so much trial, so much tribulation, so many challenges, so much adversity that you are an inspiration today. Doesn't mean, you know, like the, it doesn't matter if you get to the UFC or not. You Thank can you. also inspire so many people. Do you think that, because in the way that you said it, right, you're like, uh, I would love to be in the UFC. Um, getting that media attention is powerful. Do you think you need that today, right? Like, here, and I'll, and I'll frame it like this. There's fighters now that have siphoned their attention from the UFC and built amazing social media presence where they get more, paid more for their podcasts and their YouTubes and their socials than they do even in the UFC. Oh, yeah. So is that something, a goal of yours, you know, in the future, build up your media presence. Uh, the way that I talk to, to my team about it is when you own the media, your own media, mm -hmm. you own the, the narrative, yes. like that story that you talked about with Conor McGregor, that could have gone completely whatever direction you wanted to take it. Yeah. The fact that you had that kind of silver lining is, is I think tactful, but in general, like it fucking sucks. Yeah. Sitting on that couch with a crazy mm -hmm. staph infection in my leg, dude, it was super painful. Mm -hmm. I was in so much pain and just, mm -hmm. oh dude, it was, it, right. it took, it took a few weeks to come to this, to this <laughs> point where I'm at <laughs> now. There was a lot of, a lot more anger early on, a right. lot more frustration, mm -hmm. uh, early on. But you know, once the dust settles, like I said, I'm pretty good at finding my, like I, I, I don't allow myself to stay in mindset in mind states that negatively impact my goals. 100%. Right? Even if those circumstances are negatively impacting my goals, mm -hmm. I find a way around it and I always have. 100%. Oh. Bro, that's uh that's powerful. So everything we talked about, what's next? Um I'm excited to keep seeing you fight. I'm excited to keep seeing what's next, the the, the new chapters and everything. Um the last point I want to touch on as we're kind of closing up is I want if you could just briefly talk about why you transitioned from Utah to Las Vegas. Honestly, the way it happened was I had that fight where I had COVID in the camp and I just, you know, I'd, I'd been in a relationship, a long-term relationship that, uh, that, that I'd, you know, gotten out of and, mm -hmm. you know, all the things that I'd kind of built over the years of, in Utah of like where I was, you know, even my house, like all these different things. Like I just didn't have, I lost all of them. I didn't have anything. I was, I was just like in the spot where I was like, damn, I'm back at my mom's house trying to figure it out, trying to figure out like 
you know, I'd, I'd made some unintelligent decisions as far as like where I invested my money and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And all the things that I invested my, like, you know, I won't get into too many details, but, uh, yeah, ended up kind of that when that relationship ended, I put myself in a position where all my, all my stuff went with it. Right. You know, so that was, uh, that was tough and disheartening, but it was also motivating of like, okay, you know what I mean? Like we're going to, we're just going to restart this. Well, watch this. I'm going to be, I'm taking this to a whole new level. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't even planning on moving, to be honest with you. I was just planning on coming to Vegas and, you know, getting training and doing some camps, but I'd never come down here. I was always like in my spot with the coaches I trusted, like honing my skills. And when I came to Vegas, it was actually one of my coaches in Utah that was like, mm-hmm. uh, his name's Torbjorn Carlson, but he's, he's awesome. And he was the one who'd been for months, like, let's go to Vegas. Let's go to Vegas. Let's go to Vegas. You should go to Vegas because I'm training in. Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right, let's go. So he actually paid for it. He like drove wow. us out there and everything and rented a nice room. And mm-hmm. we stayed there for like a week mm-hmm. and uh, just trained every day, like three times a day over at syndicate, uh, clicked with coach John Wood pretty quickly. And the guys over there, uh, and I just, once I got in that room and I saw the level of, like the level of training I was getting, it was like, it went from like, okay, like I'd go to practice and like, while everybody was game, there was only maybe one or two guys that was going to be like, okay, this guy's going to be a challenge today. Like, I'm going to have to like really like put my, my best foot forward to have a good round with him or like, you know, vice versa on any given day, it's going to be like, oh, you know what I mean? It's going to be a little shaky or, or whatnot. But when you only have a few of those partners, you kind of start to learn what each other does. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of turns into like, usually your sparring kind of just falls into the same pattern every time. Right. Right. So when I went to Vegas, it was like, okay, there's literally a dozen dudes here that if I don't show up with freaking all my faculties, Mm -hmm. it's going to be, it's going to be tough. Mm -hmm. And every round was tough and every day was growth. And every day was just like, I was, it was a pressure cooker. It was like super uncomfortable because you go from like, being one of the best guys in the room on in, in the state on any given day mm-hmm. to being, who are you? Right. You know what I mean, like I, this, this dude's a three-time world champion. This dude's an Olympic medalist. This dude's, oh, you know what I mean? You're going with these, I was, I was going with guys, dude. Like I think the first day I was there, I sparred Dan Hooker, Matush Gamrot. Like there was just like all these murderers in the gym. And I was like, <laughs> holy shit, dude. Right. Like this is what I get to do every day if I move here. And it was just a no brainer. It's like right. I said, like, I'm so committed to this. As soon as I saw that, it was like, Although I don't want to leave my friends and my gym and my people mm-hmm. and like, I don't like, you know, Vegas is, you know, it's, it's, there's no guarantee out here. Mm-hmm. This is where I need to be, to be the best. Like mm-hmm. I need these looks and I need this pressure. I need to, I need to wake up with a little bit of butterflies before sparring day, because mm-hmm. if I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm probably not developing at the rate I need to, to be who I want to be. Right. You know, and here we are, you know, about a year and a half later and I've earned my spot in Las Vegas. Let's go. They know who I am. I mm-hmm. were invested. I got that good knockout. That, he's actually a training partner. My guy, the guy I last fought, he's actually really tough. Uh-huh. Uh, but we, be, you know, we become friends, and mm-hmm. I've really established myself there now. And, and anybody who knows anything knows where I'm headed. So Let's that's go. what we're doing. Yeah, that's awesome. And did you get a lot of support when you when you made that transition? Oh yeah, honestly, the people have been great. You know, I, I you know, it was, it's it's hard to like just leave everything you know, you know, mm-hmm. and. Uh, also you get caught up in it too. It's like, I feel like I, I'm the type of person that I lock in and then it's been like three months and I'm like, I haven't talked to anybody. I got to reach out and see everybody's doing, you know, it's like, and it's never personal. I don't mean to, it's just like, I'm just one track minded, dude. Like I literally will go, I'll put my head in the sand, dude, and work and come up for breath. And it's another year, you know, it's like, that's just the last seven years because I got a, I got a prison about seven years ago. Mm can't believe it's been seven years. Wow. You know what I mean? Cause I just live in this. I'm always training. Even if I can't go to practice and spar something, I'm running, mm-hmm. I'm lifting, I'm doing something always injured, uninjured, even with this knee, dude, like 
I was going running. As soon as my knee could tolerate it, I was running. I was running every day. My coach was like, dude, maybe just let rest. I'm like, no. Right. My v, I see my VO. Oh, my, my Garmin's telling me my <laughs> VO2 max is going down. I'm going to do right. a workout, you know, or not lose. I've, I've spent years developing my body. Fucking injury. Hell yeah. You know? Dude, and that's it. That's the mindset of a champion. And again, we are excited to see what happens, what, what transpires over the coming months. Uh, I'm sure a lot of your fans are going to be super excited to see you in the ring again. Hell yeah. Um, what... Where can people find you? I'm on Instagram mostly at Mitch underscore Ramirez. Okay. I have a Twitter too under my name as well, but I haven't been on. I'm, I'm terrible with social media, dude, to be honest with you. <laughs> I, I'm trying to get better at it, but <laughs> like my experiences. So when I did all that time, that's when social media really took off. Mm -hmm. Like I, so right before I got arrested on that big one, Instagram was brand new. I right. just got an Instagram. It was like me and a handful of my buddies that had them. Facebook mm -hmm. was just phasing out. Vine didn't exist. None of these platforms were like, you know, what they were now. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's why my name is at Mitch underscore Ramirez. Like I was that early into Instagram. I got my name. Right. The first thing I typed in. And when I got back, it was like, holy crap, dude, everybody's got smartphones. Like mm -hmm. there's this whole, like everybody's on social media. Like literally, I remember hearing people talk about, oh, I miss Vine. And I was like, what's Vine? <laughs> like I can, I, you missed that whole, I missed that whole <laughs> era, dude. Like I had right. no idea. So coming out, it was like, I got an iPhone six, dude. And I was like, this is crazy. You know? And like, I had to like learn how to be right. a normal human amongst right. other, I felt like, dude, I still feel like an alien sometimes, mm -hmm. but I think that's why it doesn't come natural to me, but long, that's a long way of saying mostly on Instagram. I have a Facebook, but I'm not on a whole bunch. I'm trying to, I'm trying to be more active on Twitter, but yeah, that's, that's usually where you're going to find me. Instagram is where I post most of my stuff and where I, if you're looking to know when my next fight is or see what I'm doing on a daily basis, it's going to be Instagram. You're not on TikTok? Not really. I have one now, but man, it's like, Barely getting Instagram under control, bro. I, I, I should probably get a TikTok with me. If we brought you any value today, like, subscribe, share this content, share this with anyone that's an MMA fan or a sports fan. Uh, this is somebody you want to follow. This is somebody you want to keep a pulse on. He's going he's gonna to change a lot of people's lives in a positive way, regardless of what happens with the, uh, the UFC or whoever he goes to. So uh, thanks again for tuning in. We appreciate your attention and thanks for your awareness. Peace.